almost 20 weeks we've been going through this book uh, that John has written to probably a church in uh, ancient Ephesus, a church that he maybe helped to plant, but at least he was a, a pastor there. And he loves them. He calls them his little children when he writes to them. He calls them his beloved when he writes to them. So he's pouring his heart out to them as a, probably an elderly man now. His life's winding down. In chapter 5, he talks a lot about belief and, and faith. Because we want to hear, how is he going to wrap up this, this letter? You know, what are, what are his final words to, uh, to these people going to, going to be as he's penning this letter to them? A lot of times when you're writing a letter to somebody, right, by the time you get to the, to the end, maybe you consider, okay, what, what do I really want to emphasize? What, what have, I, have I not made clear enough? What, what do I want the, the last thought for my reader to have? So they're important words to read. And he talks about belief and faith. In fact, in the, this whole letter, though those words are mentioned ten times, and seven of them show up in chapter 5. And so he's going to be talking and reminding these people of the importance of, of faith, of believing and trusting Jesus and, and Jesus alone. Now, if you've been walking with us through this series, you also know that, that, that John, he draws a, a line in the sand. And he's writing to a church that, that he's protective of, and, and since he's left... There has been some false doctrine that has come in, some teaching that is not true, that is not in accordance with the gospel, that is not what John taught. And he's heard about this. And that's partly why he's writing the letter. He's writing the letter to, to call people out. Right? He's calling people out. And he's describing very clearly what, what a disciple of Jesus is and, and what a Christian is. Because everybody there is claiming to be a disciple, and everybody there is claiming to be a Christian, but the reality then, as the reality is now, is not everybody who, who gathers in a church building on a Sunday and calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. And so he clearly says, this is what a Christian is. This is what a disciple of Jesus is. And, and that is meant to, for those who, who do love Jesus and those who are Christians, they hear that and that's encouraging. That's encouraging to, to, to hear that. It, it builds confidence in them. You know, yes, you know, I do love God. Yes, God does love me. Yes, my life is changed. Things are different. And, and it's encouraging and it gives us a, a greater assurance. But it also has the opposite effect. And the opposite effect is for those who, who are not following Jesus. It, it, it brings them to the surface and it exposes them for who they are. Because if this is what a disciple is and this is what a Christian is and, and that is not who I am and that is not what I believe and that is not how I think and that is not what I do, then I have no right to call myself a, a Christian. And so he writes real confrontationally. 
It, it may be handled a lot different in churches today. If there was a problem in a church and maybe there's some teaching that doesn't really, you know, isn't in sync with what was originally taught and there's people there and, and it's, it's questionable whether or not they're really Christians. You know, we say things like, oh, well, we don't want to judge and, and well, we can't see the heart. And, and we, we, we say these things that, that sometimes can become excuses. And, and John doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't just let it go. He writes a strong letter because he loves him, because he cares for him. And so today in the first 12 uh, verses of chapter 5, he's going to talk about uh, what it means to be born again. What, what has happened to us because we've been born again and what happened to us so that we became born again. What, is that, what does that mean? There's like two categories of Christians today. There's Christians and there's born-again Christians. But the Bible doesn't have those two categories. You know, Christian and born-again Christian. The born-again Christian is not just, oh, you're the, the really serious Christian. You're the freak. You, you dance during worship and, 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 and you pray a lot, like not just over meals and... You listen to Christian music, and you, you probably have more than one Bible. And that's a born-again Christian. And then there's just the, well, the Christian, just the, the check the box. But the Bible makes no distinction. Unless you're the kind of Christian that doesn't go to heaven, you, you are, you're a born-again Christian. So we all are born-again Christians, if indeed that's what we are. But what is that? What does that mean? And, and, and how did that how did that happen? Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3, and, and, and Jesus teaches him about how he has to be born again. And you remember, it just, it just blew his mind. He had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Neither did we the first time we read it. And then we read and we understand, and we've got some great teaching here from John in chapter 5. So let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you've made. Thank you for the grace that you have you've given all of us today. Look, God, there's some of us here who, who know you've been gracious to us and we ask you make us even more thankful and grateful. Lord, I suppose there's probably some here today who don't realize that you have been gracious to them today. That there are things that they deserve as sinful people. And they may not believe that they're sinful. They may not believe that you are righteous. They may not believe that these things even matter. And so they may not realize that what they deserve from a holy, good, righteous, just God is not love and gifts. But what you've given all of us here today is love and gifts. We woke up this morning. We breathed. Most of us, I'm sure, have eaten good food today. We've had drink. And all of this is directly from Your hand. So God, thank You. And if there's some here that don't see it that way, we ask You would cultivate in them thankfulness. That they would see and, and believe for the first time that there is a great loving giver behind these gifts. 
and that they would admire you maybe for the first time and love you for the first time this afternoon. So we love you and give you praise. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have a Bible, 1 John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. Encourage you to read along. I don't encourage you to take notes necessarily. You can if you want. Some of you just like to listen, but I do encourage you to read God's Word together on your own. We're going to break this into two sections, the first five verses, one through five, and then we'll look at verses six through twelve. So first we're going to look at the first five verses, and we're going to read about four results of being born of God. Now, there's different ways we say that. Born of God, born again, regeneration. Those all mean the same thing. And so I might use those terms interchangeably today. Born of God, born, of, uh, born again, regeneration. That all means the same thing. And when you are born of God, there is a dramatic change that takes place in your life. And there are consequences and there are results. Now, some will teach that these kinds of things that we're talking about today are things that you must do in order to be born again. So it's you hit the first domino and you start doing these good things and then God causes you to be born again. But actually, it's God who gets the dominoes tipping. He is the one. And so these are consequences of being born again. They are not causes of being born again. So the four results that we're going to read about, number one, result number one is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. Because we have been born of God, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. The second result of being born of God is that we love God and we love His children. The second result from being born again is that we love God and we love His children. So we're loving people. The third result is that we obey or we keep God's commands. So we're an obedient people. We obey and we keep God's commands. And the fourth result is that we overcome the world. That's a big one. And sounds really cool. Like superhero stuff. We overcome the world. What does that mean? We're going to look at that. So those are the, the four results. Let's get started in in verse 1 here, and we see 2 really quick. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So there it is right away. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. So here is this, this present, ongoing activity. Believing. And you're going to see others in here. Believe, love, faith, obedience, overcoming. And these are all present. And in the Greek, that means ongoing activities. But what does it say? That present, ongoing activity, believing, what has happened already, has been born of God. So there is this present, ongoing activity in your life, and those are the four results that we're going through. But what happened first, and, and the reason behind these, is a past experience. 
something has happened to you. Not something that is still happening to you. That's where the tense of the original Greek is important here. You're doing something now because something done over happened to you at some point in the past. And he says that what happened to you in the past was you were born of God. And the first two results are here. Because you were born of God, now you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And two, you love God and you love His children. And so we, like the readers that originally read this, we should ask ourselves, okay, do I believe that Jesus is the Christ? And do I love God? And do I love His children? Ask yourself, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe anything less than that? Or do you believe the Gospel? Do you believe that God created man and man was good? And do you believe that man rebelled against God? And do you believe that that first man, Adam, was, according to Romans 5, he was a representative of all his posterity, of everyone who would follow. And when he sinned, we all sinned. And of course, throughout life, we have proven that that is true by sinning as soon as we have the chance. Do we believe then that, that we as a people, we fell away from God and turned away from God and have run away from God and we have gone astray and we've chosen to go our own way and to please ourselves and to do what we want and to submit to ourselves as the only authority and not to love God above all things. And do you believe that God is a good God and God is a righteous God, God is a holy God and God is a just God? And so it would, be, it would be an abomination for a good God to let this injustice go. And therefore, we are deserving of eternal punishment from God because we have committed sin against an infinitely good God. It's much worse than me sinning against one of you or one of you sinning against me because I'm a sinner just like you. I mean, it's bad, but it's nothing compared to sinning against a God who has been nothing but good and loving and gracious to you. It's infinite ugliness. And so we don't deserve to be with God. We don't belong with God. We deserve to be alienated with God because that is the path as sinners that we all choose to go our own way. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if, if something doesn't happen from God that you will end up eternally alienated from God, but that God, because He loved us, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, and that Jesus lived perfectly, was tempted in every way, and yet was without sin. So He didn't go the way that we go. He went the way of perfect holiness and pleased His Father in heaven and honored His Father in heaven perfectly. And therefore, was ready to just go back and be with the Father. And yet you see this ugly death. And the ugly death is because Jesus died in our place. The cross was ugly for so many reasons. The cross was painful for so many reasons. The cross was dark for so many reasons. Sinful men and women who put them on the Him on the cross. 
who cried out, crucify him. But understand that the greatest hand behind the cross was the hand of God himself. That the biggest reason the cross was as ugly and as painful as it was is because God the Father was unleashing, if you will, His stored up wrath against the sins of the world and unleashing that wrath on His Son who went willingly in your place. You believe that. And so you are free now from condemnation. You are, you are free from God's wrath. If you would take hold of Jesus and believe and trust Him and love Him and honor Him and serve Him and treasure Him as your great substitute, as your great Savior, as your great Redeemer. And that Jesus did not die and stay dead, but the 36 hours later, He rose from the dead. He emerged from the grave. So death did not win. Jesus won. That's why one of the, the cries of Christians today is Jesus is risen. He rose from the dead, vindicating His entire ministry. Everything that He said. All of the prophecy that there would come one who would conquer and beat and defeat death. And that one was Jesus. That gives us great hope. That means that death will not have the final word for us who are in Christ. Because not only did He die in your place, He rose in your place. And He ascended to be with the Father as a picture and a foretaste of what will happen to you when you die. You will ascend to be with the Father. You will be with Him in paradise. And as Jesus went to heaven, He passed the Holy Spirit and like high-fived Him way up and way down. And Jesus sent His Holy Spirit Right? So Jesus went out of the game. Holy Spirit came in. And He sent His Holy Spirit now to awaken us, to see, to awaken His children to what Jesus has done. Because before the Holy Spirit awakened you, like we're going to see again today, you just didn't believe it. It was just silly. It was nonsense. It was foolishness. And then one day, it hit. Because the Holy Spirit awakened you. And when He awakened you, He said, I'm here to stay. I will be the very presence of Jesus in you and through you, loving you, loving others through you, reminding you of what God has done, bringing Scripture to mind, enabling you to understand Scripture, guiding you, leading you, comforting you, encouraging you, until you get to see Jesus face to face. Do you believe that? That is what John means when he says you believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's not talking about checking a box. He means this Redeemer that from Adam and Eve was just promised for centuries and centuries and centuries. Hang on. I know it's bad. I know you can't keep my law. I know you can't do this. I know you're not good enough. I know no one is. But there's a Redeemer who's coming. There's one who is coming who will rescue you and save you. Hold on. Hang on. The Old Testament was looking forward to Jesus. We're looking back to Him. He came in history and did everything we just talked about. And that's what it means to say Jesus is the Christ and nothing less. If you believe that, that is a result of something happening back here. And it was you were born again. You were born of God. He doesn't say you believe that Jesus is the Christ because you got smart. 
He doesn't say because you read enough books, because you were, you were wise, or, or somebody finally gave you a good gospel presentation. It was a bunch of jacked up tracks, and then one day somebody gave you a good one, and it was written, you know, at a third grade level, and you understood it, and it made sense, and you grasped it, and things were just happening where you were more open, and it doesn't say anything like that. No, something happened internally that just changed your, your whole spiritual disposition. It was like you were blind, and then you could see, and what that was, was you were born again. And for those of you who are Christians, can you not look back? Easier if it was later in life. More difficult if it was younger in life. But can you not look back and see, I was blind, and then I saw. I didn't believe. I believed. You remember the testimony of C.S. Lewis? I got on the bus to go to the zoo. I got off the bus. I was a Christian. Maybe you went to the zoo. What happened on the bus? Born of God. God can do it in a bus. A little plug there for public transit. <laughs> for my father-in-law. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Do you love God? Do you love God's children? It's sort of easy to love God. What I mean by that is God is, He is imminent, but He is also so transcendent in that He's, he's not standing here. Because God is transcendent, it is easy for us and easy for people to just invent their own idea of God and assign qualities to God that they think are lovable and therefore love Him. And that's why everybody loves God. I mean, very few people hate God. Now, they don't know God. That's the problem. Because He's, he's transcendent. And so there's this liberty that they take to just kind of invent Him, right? So you ask 10 different people, do you love God? Maybe 10 people say they love God, but then you ask them who God is and you get 10 very different answers. Well, they can't all be right. Contrary to what Oprah would say, they can't all be right. Someone's got to be right. God must be existing with certain qualities and attributes. Surely it's not just up to us. But we do that. We can just kind of invent Him and then, and then assign whatever qualities we want Him to have. So, well, He's not just about this, like the things I struggle with. But He's just about this, the sins that I really despise and hate in others. And He's merciful, and He overlooks all these things. He doesn't really care about these things that are an issue for me. But over here, or He only takes real, real big, serious, dark sin he only takes that seriously. But the other stuff, not a big deal. Or he doesn't care really that I worship him the way he asks me to. He just wants me to be sincere and, and give it my best shot and be spiritual. Whatever it is. And people are doing that and just assigning qualities to God and then saying, yeah, that's, I like that God. I love that God. But it, it's just something you conjured up in your imagination. But it's very different to love God's people. Which is why he links them together and says, if you love God, you love the other ones who were born of God, like you were. You love them. 
that's much more difficult to do. You can't assign those qualities to your neighbor because his qualities are just right there in the open. And a lot of them, they're not lovable. He says you will love them. You'll have affection for them. He goes on, two more results. Let's look at the third one. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. These are the themes, right? The tests that are over and over again in John. He's saying, do you believe in God? Do you love God? Do you obey God? He's been saying that over and over again. And here we see it in the first couple verses of chapter 5. So the third result of being born of God is that we obey God's commandments. Or he's going to say, keep God's commandments. We keep God's commandments. Think about that. Not just that there's a, there's a commandment and when I hear it, when it's spoken to me, when I might read it, okay, just sort of passively, I'm going to obey that, right? When I'm driving down and I see the speed limit sign, I'm going to obey that. But keeping means I'm looking for them. I'm holding them. I'm treasuring them. I'm keeping His commandments. I, I want to know what they are. I'm, there's a difference, right, between driving... And, and, and seeing a speed limit sign and driving and looking for a speed limit sign. Many of you don't look for any traffic regulations. You just plead ignorance, right? Just tunnel vision. I don't want to know what the speed limit is because then I, then I can claim that I didn't know any better and I'm not really guilty. And people can do that with God. Well, if, I, if, if the pra- pastor preaches on it, okay. You know, I'm going to follow it. But I'm not going to be delighting in the law of the Lord. I'm not going to be reading through, looking for His commandments because there's a desire in me to keep them. But that's what he's talking about. So do we obey God's commandments? Are you, are you committed to keeping them? Are you committed to holiness? Or are you thinking, what is that? Do you want to know what God's commands are so that you can follow them? John 14.21 says, Jesus says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Right, I say this to my boys. I say this to them now. They've been disobedient often. Often, one of the questions that I will ask them when we're talking is, do you love Daddy? And they think for a while. <laughs> no, we've got loving boys. So they always say yes, even when they're mad at me. yes. Or, yes, I love you. And then I'll say, if you love me, and I give you an instruction, what will you do? (sighs) Obey. Yes, yes, and joyfully, just like that. My dad would give me an instruction and he'd tell me to go do it and he'd say, and with a smile on your face. 
Okay. Say, do you, do, you, do you love Daddy? Okay, if you love me, what is one of the most important ways that you show Daddy you love me? By obeying me. Do I feel like you love me if you're not obeying me? No, Daddy doesn't. Do I feel like you love me when you're obeying me? Yes, I do. Is there more delight and joy and intimacy and fun in our relationship when you're obeying me? Yes. Because there's love going back and forth. I know best. I love you. I'm instructing you. You trust me. Even though you, you think you can put eight tablespoons of sugar on your lucky charms, I know that's not good. I know that's not going to work. I know that green thing is good for you. I know it will help you. You don't believe it, but you trust. You trust me, so you love me. You love me and trust that I'm doing what's best for you. And so you will abandon your way and you will obey my way. I mean, you see how that works just in human relationship. Jesus says the same thing. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He is the one who loves me. And then the fourth result. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Three times in just two verses, he says, overcome the world. So the fourth result that he taught if you've been born of God, this past experience, something has happened to you, here's the result. You are overcoming the world. If you don't obey God, you're obeying the world. There's the only two ways. The world and its desires, which are passing away, but which look really good and look really fun, and Satan's behind it, and death is behind it. But it looks good. And so if we're not obeying God, we're obeying the world. And if you are obeying the world, the world will overcome you. It will have you. It will, it will win. It will choke out the other desires and you will end up on a path of destruction. The path that, that Solomon is warning his sons not to go on in Proverbs. You will end up in the way of the wicked. You will sit in the seat of mockers. You will stand in the path of sinners if, if you are loving and obeying the world. But if we've been born of God, he says we keep God's commandments and they're not burdensome, which means not only do we keep God's commands, but we do it with a smile on our face. We keep His commands joyfully and, and freely. We're not, we're not being... Someone's not making us and forcing us to do this. We don't look at it as, I have to obey God. I get to obey God. That's what it means that His commandments are not burdensome. Why are His commandments not burdensome? He says, because you have overcome the world. And then He gives more explanation. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. So, so what, is, what does that mean, I've overcome the world? Our faith. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He says, you keep God's commandments, but now you've, you've overcome the world. The world wants to overcome you. It wants to have you. It wants you to go that way and not go God's way. But you're going God's way because you've been born of God. And not only that, you're not just doing it because you have to. You're doing it because you get to. His commands are not a burden to you. You want to obey God. 
Why do you want to obey God? Because you have overcome the world by faith. So through the eyes of faith, you see that Jesus is a far greater treasure than the world. That's how you overcome the world. That's how you've overcome the world. Because from day one, when you were born of God and your eyes popped open and you saw with faith, like a newborn baby, a newborn baby, as soon as it's born, if everything goes well, cries. And when you were born again, you cried out in faith. You cried out in faith and you're still an ongoing activity crying out in faith. And you're, when you do that, that is the victory that overcomes the world. I'm seeing Jesus. I'm, I'm seeing how wonderful He is. I'm, I'm like Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may be fail, but you are my portion forever. I love you. Why would I choose this? Why would, you could take all this away. For me to live as Christ, to die, it's just gain. So, so there are wonderful things in this world. And there is treasure to be had in this world, but it does not compare. It is not in the same category as Jesus. And so I am able to overcome the world and its desire and its trappings and its enticement and its luring because by faith I see that that's good, but this is so much better. And when temptation comes, if you resist and stand firm, what has happened is by faith you have stood firm. By faith you have said, Satan, that's a lie. This is not better. I do not need this. This isn't a must-have. This isn't a I won't be happy unless. This is an idol. And it's going to burn and Jesus is better. And when that happens, the ongoing activity of overcoming the world is taking place. And the reason that's happening, John says, is that is a result. That's not your good sin fighter. That's back here. You were born of God. You were born anew. Those are the four results. Matthew 11.30, Jesus says, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. His commandments are not burdensome. Second section, verses 6-12. through 12. So we've seen that the becoming a Christian, then step number one is be born again. Be born again. And when we're born again, we cry out to God in faith, belief that that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we trust Him. So, so what happens? How does, that, how does that happen? How does someone get regenerated? How does someone get born again? How does someone become born of God? And we're going to see in what we've already looked at, and now in verses 6-12, through 12, that, that two things have to take place. One is, very clearly, something has to go on inwardly, right? Inwardly, Regeneration, born again. You've got to be changed from the inside out so that you believe, obey, overcome. 
love. Something has to happen on the inside and inside work. But something else has to happen. In order for you to become a Christian, in order for you to become born again, there's the inward work, but then there is also the outward call of the Gospel. You have to hear or read the good news. God does not just, just zap people. He doesn't just, no Bible, no preacher, just Gospel in your head right now. That's not how God operates. He operates in conjunction with His people sharing, evangelizing, being missionaries overseas, here, wherever it is. He uses us to proclaim and declare the Gospel and then people hear it and then some, there's no change, there's no regeneration, there's no response, but then others... He works in collaboration with that outward call and He causes them to be born again and they believe and they accept it. So there's something going on, right? Inwardly and outwardly. Do you have people that you have told this good news and they don't believe? You should not stop telling them. You should not, I mean, labor at, at, at figuring out, you know, good ways to, to speak in, in, a, in a language that they're going to understand and, and share testimony and, and think through those things for sure. But it's not going to hang on you getting the perfect gospel presentation, right, and get the outward call right, and then this thing, this baby's just going to click. There's two components, right? This outward call or testimony, as he's going to describe it in verses 6 through 12, but then something's going to have to pop inwardly in order for them to believe. Isn't that the hope we have in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, when Paul says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Okay, so this is the person that you're working with, and they're not repenting, they're not placing their faith in Jesus, and there's going to be a tendency at some point to just fight. And so he says, Do not be quarrelsome. But be kind to everyone, able to teach. So teach them, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? Why do I persist in all that? Because maybe eventually they'll see just how loving you are and they'll be won over by your love. Maybe. Maybe not. So why? What is my hope? Why do, I, why do I endure this evil? Why do I keep being kind? Why do I be patient? Why do I need to be able to teach them? Why? For God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by Him to do His will. So why, do we, why is the outward call important? Why do we bring the Gospel, which is the testimony, and why do we need to be a testifier? Testify. Why do we do that? We do that in hopes that at some point, we don't know when, 
God may grant them repentance, and God granting them repentance will lead them to a knowledge of the truth. It's not the other way around. You just get the truth right, and if they're a smart, reasonable person, it's all going to fire off. He's not what he's saying. He's saying you be patient, and you keep bringing the gospel to bear on their life, because at some point, God may flip a switch, and that switch is granting them. What is that? It's a gift. It's a gift. What's the gift that God gives and gave to all of you who are Christians? Repentance. Your repentance was a gift from God. Your faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. And He may give that gift. That's why Romans 10 says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Making it very clear. The inward work of God is necessary. But so is faithful Christians telling the Gospel. Not preaching the Gospel all the time and if necessary using words, by the way. Using words. You don't wash someone's feet or get them some socks or take them dinner and they grasp and understand the Gospel. Words. The Gospel Word. How will they believe if a preacher isn't sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, not bring socks. The socks are good. Don't get me wrong. Socks are good. Compassion is good. Mercy is good. Please don't take that out of context. But they have not all obeyed the Gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So another word for this proclamation that we're talking about that needs to take place is testimony. And when you become a Christian or when you became a Christian, there was a testimony and there was a testifier. Somehow, you heard or you read the Gospel story. Who Jesus was and what He has done. That was necessary. And verses 1-5, through you were born of God. But let's look now more at that testimony and that testifier and what was, what was happening. First, something about Jesus. This is He, that's Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Which is really confusing. And so, real quick, just three historical interpretations. One of them is right, and the other two are wrong. I'm not sure which is which. That's probably comforting. One, uh, one interpretation is that the water and the blood refers to the sacraments, communion and, and baptism. Because um, often water is a symbol of baptism and, and, and blood or, or communion is the juice, the cup is representative of, of blood. Um, we don't see that anywhere else in Scripture. And, uh, and he's referring to something that is past tense. Those are ordinances that we still practice in the church. But he's saying Jesus came by water and by blood. So probably not. Uh, you can tell which one I'm going to lean toward. 
The second one is that it's referring to the, you remember when Jesus was stabbed with the spear when he was on the cross and the water and the blood flowed out. But that's just kind of weird. I don't know how that would connect. But there's books written on how it would. <laughs> you can read those. But I don't think it makes sense. Number three, um, this is what, what I think it means. Is that Jesus came and Jesus came and the water refers to his baptism and the blood refers to his cross. That's the first thing. And then there's a symbolic meaning probably underneath that the scripture is real clear on. What that means is that Jesus came and, and he passed through right, baptism. He came to minister. He came on a mission. And that was the inauguration of his ministry, right? When he was baptized by his cousin John. And so he came through that and then he went through all the way to the cross and that was the completion of his ministry. And so that is the life of Jesus from beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, from the water to the blood. The beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry. Remember the heretics at the time believed that, oh, Jesus was just a man, right? And then at baptism the Messiah came on him spiritually and then right before the cross, because God could not suffer, ascended back to heaven. So he, I believe, is refuting that by saying, no, Jesus came through the water and through the blood, the Christ. As well, in, in the Bible, water is almost always a symbol of purification and blood is a symbol of the atonement. And so we have been, through Jesus, we have been purified from our sin. Now, the blood means that we have been our sin has been atoned for, which means our sin has been paid for, which means that the guilt of our sin has been removed. And we've talked about this before. But having the guilt of your sin removed, in other words, there's not a punishment that is awaiting me anymore, that is a very different thing from having the shame of my sin removed. But through Jesus, the guilt and the shame is removed. You are cleansed. You are purified. Not just you're dirty and you're filthy, but in the end, it's not going to count because it's been atoned for. It's no, you are purified and cleansed, spotless before God right now. And so this is the testimony of, of, of Jesus. That's who, that's who he's talking about. So Jesus came, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, and the, here we go with the testimony, the testifier, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. So here's what has happened. And what John is doing is he, is he is taking a closer look now at this being born of God. Okay, what, what happened? And so it's clear that there was a, the testimony of men, right? The testimony of men. So you heard the gospel. So we've got that. There was an outward call that was taking place. There was a testimony that this is who Jesus is. And there was the testifier who was giving it to you. And then there was this inward work of being born of God. But now he, he brings us even closer. I mean, I mean what happened? How did, that, how, did that, how did that work? Does Scripture give us any more insight to when I was regenerated, what was actually taking place? I mean, was it just like a spiritual lightning bolt that, that, that just hit me? What really happened when I was regenerated and born again? And so here's the greater insight 
that he gives us into what happened inwardly when you became a Christian. There was a, an evangelist, we'll just call that person. Maybe it was a friend, a family member, a preacher, someone who wrote the gospel out in a book or on a tract, whatever it was. But there was a, a human testifier. But at that moment when you believed, the Holy Spirit Himself was testifying to you. That's what He just told us. Greater insight. What happened when, when I was born again? Well, a person was whispering in your ear, figuratively. That would be kind of creepy. if. <laughs> anyway. A person was, was whispering something into your ear. But the Holy Spirit was saying the same thing. Now the person, right? Accept, reject, accept, reject, resist. I mean, we do this all the time. I mean, you've got some people who've got sway over you, right? But it's not Holy Spirit sway. When you've got people who you want to approve and, 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 you, and you, you, want to, you want to impress and, and, and you, want, you want rewards from, and, and so they've got, some, they've got some power over you. But they don't have ultimate power. When the Holy Spirit testifies to you, you believe. That's what John's saying. When the Holy Spirit testifies to you, you believe. No one hears the testimony from the Holy Spirit from God and rejects. God has never moped in heaven saying, I gave it my best shot. I just cannot crack that one. Gosh, I've met some stubborn, rebellious people, but they take the cake. I mean, I pulled out everything I know how to do. I even testified them through the Holy Spirit. I didn't just providentially organize their life so that this moment happened where the gospel was being preached by someone. I didn't just organize and orchestrate all that. I also testified with my Holy Spirit and, and even that was, was rejected. God does not experience that. When God means to awaken someone when God means to save someone, when God means to stop them in their tracks and turn them away from sin and draw them to Himself, He gets the job done. And so this greater insight that John gives us is that when you were saved, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. The Holy Spirit Himself testifies to us. The Holy Spirit Himself must testify to us that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus came through the water and the blood, and when the Spirit testifies, He also awakens. 1 Corinthians 12.3 teaches this. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So when you believed and said Jesus is Lord, you did that because it was the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit 
was testifying to you. And the way that God caused you to be born again, the way that God regenerated, the way that God gave you new life, is He Himself presented the Gospel to your soul. And you were born again. God does not have to give you these little details of how He has loved you. That's what that's here for. God. You preach the Gospel to me in such a way that I no longer resisted you. You saved me from my folly. It was all of grace. I have nothing to boast in. I have nothing to brag about. That's what causes us to write songs and hymns of how great the Father's love is for us. It's grasping these kinds of truths. If you are a Christian... Thank God for this. Thank God for this. This is not a story. This is not myth. If you are a Christian, John is saying, let me show you what God did. Be thankful. Your life is to be a living sacrifice, worship, and this is the kindling for that fire to burn bright. These kinds of truths. Verses 9-12 through 12, or 10-12 through 12, The testimony is, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Three things he says about eternal life. One is it is a gift from God. God gave us eternal life. So eternal life is not something that we deserve. It is a gift from God. The second thing he tells us is that eternal life is in Jesus. Eternal life is not found anywhere else but in Jesus Christ. Nowhere else. Especially not through ourselves and our good works and our effort. Only in Jesus Christ. The third really cool thing it tells us here about eternal life is that it is a present possession. Whoever has the Son has life. If you are a Christian, you have eternal life right now. It's a present possession. Not you will have life one day. Eternal life is not something that begins when you die. Eternal life is now. You, Christian, have eternal life. Your death is a transition from good to better. It is just your soul, right? Casting off this body 
and going to be present with God in heaven, awaiting being given a brand new body that's way better than the one you have now. And that eternal life is right now. So we should live like we have eternal life right now. When we think like that, why would we ever fear man? Why would we ever fear man? When we understand that we have eternal life right now, that it is a precious gift from God, not by anything that we have done, and that gift is in Christ. So just two applications for the Christian and the, and the non-Christian. Of course, we've got both here. I'm so glad about that. But to reiterate, Christian, like we say at the end of every sermon, to those of you who are saved, may you find every blessing in Christ this week. May every, every blessing that you have, every joy that you have, every circumstance that you have, May you see that the, the root of all of this is, is Jesus and love Him and adore Him and serve Him and, and honor Him. That your, your relationship with Christ would be fueled this week as you grasp in greater depth His truth. And so when we read, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. May we have hearts of thankfulness cultivated within. But what about to the person who isn't saved? What about to the person who is not a Christian? I mean, this kind of a sermon can be rough because like Nicodemus standing before Jesus, you must be born again. Oh, what do I do to be born again? Well, there's nothing that you can do. It's all a work of God. What a frustrating place to be. Well, why are you even telling me this good news? Why even tell me this gospel? Why even, if, okay, you're, you're doing your part, but if something has to happen inside and that needs to come from God, and there's nothing that I can do to provoke that in God because it's totally a work of Him and none of these results that you're talking about, including faith and eternal life, will happen unless I can be born of God. That just sounds ridiculous. Why do you even bother sharing Christ with me? It's like you're dangling a proverbial carrot out in front of me. What am I supposed to do with that other than feel helpless? And the answer is, exactly! Feel, do you feel that? Do you feel helpless and desperate? Do you understand that there is nothing that you can do other than cry out for mercy from God? And if you will sincerely cry out for mercy, He will answer you. Feel the desperation. Don't hide the full Gospel from your friends. For those of you who are Christians, testify, 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 testify. Hoping and praying that the Lord may grant them repentance. Keep going. Don't give up. 
work at this. Keep praying over and over and over and over again. Desperately dependent on God. And to you who are not saved, cry out to God for mercy. Feel the desperation. Feel the desperation of your position before God and hear the Gospel and believe the Gospel. Just take hold of this. Reach out in faith. Repent. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus. And when you do, know that it is because you have been born of God. People want to say that this truth keeps us from sharing Christ. But the reality is, this truth should motivate you to preach Christ. If God does not do an internal work, what hope do you have and what is the point of sharing Christ? To a sinful person in rebellion against God. You think you're going to tip the scale? Please. What hope do you have? But if you hear this good news, God may grant them repentance. Do you hear God just motivating you? Just do it. You never know. I may grant them repentance. Be faithful and testify because there is something greater than your testimony. 1 John 5. It is my testimony. And in my time, I'll whisper with you. And they will be saved. So unbelievers, hear the Gospel and know that this is truth spoken to you in love and affection. And now turn to Christ and be saved. Right now. Don't have to repeat a prayer. Don't have to raise your hand. Don't have to fill out a form. And we want to know. You don't have to do that. Just right here, right now. Believe. Are you struggling? Are you frustrated? Is this difficult for you? Ask God for mercy. Ask Him to remove the scales. Ask Him to soften your heart. Ask Him to loosen the chains. And my friend, you just may have the chains loosened. I'll pray. And then we celebrate communion. We have this renewing of our covenant with God every single week. And these signs of the covenant, this bread and this juice, where God focuses us on the cross and on the redemption that we have in the cross. And so if you're a believer, and you're part of a church family, you are welcome to share this meal with us today. We've got leaders who will serve you. You could take it back to your seat. If you would wait, we'll take it together. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Holy Word.
And thank You for these, these truths that are difficult sometimes, God, to, to preach. And then thank You, Lord, that You wash away all of our, all of our concerns. Well, if we teach this, God, then won't that discourage non-believers? God, thank You for washing those concerns away with just more truth. The truth that this Word is Your sword. And if we're not swinging it, we should not expect anything good to happen. So Lord, as men and women who have been adopted by You, Teach us to swing these swords. And we pray that as we do, and maybe even now, that Your Word would do its work and it would cut deep to the heart. It would expose sin. It would convict of sin. And then the good news of the cross and forgiveness and cleansing and righteousness would be ushered in and the light of Your Gospel would spread into every dark corner of someone's life. And they would cry out to You in faith and gratitude and love. So we love You, Lord. Thank You for the time, even these next few moments we have, to worship You together as a family coming together. May we seize every moment for You and for Your glory. We pray this in the great name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Back.